Thanks for tuning in. My name's Andre Servin, and you're listening to Off the Roost Podcast, brought to you by Off the Roost Custom Calls, turkey calls for the serious hunter. Join me and my co-host, Paul Murdahl, as we delve into the world of the wild turkey, covering everything from calling tips and tactics and hunting strategies to the latest equipment available, featuring interviews from special guests and custom call giveaways. We'll do our best to keep you up to date on this obsession we call turkey hunting. We appreciate you joining us. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome back, folks. We appreciate you guys uh, giving us another go here. Uh, today we got a uh, the guys, the two listeners that we may have. The two listeners. Another... <laughs> uh, my, my my dad and my brother. <laughs> hey, that's good. Uh, so uh, today we got a good guest. We got how can I describe this guy? Um, he's. He's a guy that knows a lot about turkeys, and he has been hunting turkeys for a long time, and he really cares about turkeys. He's really involved with turkeys. Um, He's been affiliated with a lot of a lot of rehab and stuff like that, turkeys in, in his area and whatnot, and throughout the state, or throughout, I guess, mostly the western United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he mentions that... Uh, He's been hunting turkeys since the early 60s or something like that. There's not a whole lot of people that can say that. Right. Um, and uh, he is a, a very knowledgeable guy. Some of you may know him as uh, Jim Bates. And uh, some of you may also know him as a Gobblenut. And that would be uh, on the... Gobblenut on the old gobbler form. That's right. Gobblenut on the old gobbler form. That's actually how me and you became acquainted with them, was through that forum there. That's right. And uh, I know me and you were talking prior, uh, and, you know, I kind of share the same uh, sentiment about uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, because anybody could say whatever on a forum, but uh, Gobblenut's one of those guys where uh, you want to pay attention when he's talking. Right. And uh, normally he's going to give you a good answer, too. It's not... It's not one of those answers that's, uh, oh, I don't know, one of the typical forum responses. Gobblenut gives you a good answer. He, he tends to be a little long-winded in his responses, but it, but it's all good, good, really good information. Yeah, he's just, I think, crossing, checking all of his, making sure all the bases are checked when he responds, you know? Right, right. But, uh... So uh, we did have uh, a little bit of some uh, minor technical difficulties before uh, when we were recording a little bit. Uh, so when the conversation starts, we kind of just dive into uh, one of the conversations that we were having. So uh, unfortunately, there is no uh, proper introduction, but uh, we have on uh, Jim Bates of New Mexico. So with that said, let's get into it. Uh, yeah, you know, we had Joe Slayton on, I think, last. 
Was he yeah. last? Yeah. I think so. Did they, did you? No, we had he, Gene back on after oh. Joe. Yeah, we well we mentioned you to Joe. We're like you know we're yeah. we're, we're we we're getting a guy. He goes by Gobblenut. Uh, I said, uh, his name's Jim from New Mexico. He told us that you hunted with him, you and your son. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I remember that. That It was a little bit ago, but. Yeah, it's been, uh, I'm guessing, 10 or 12 years ago but that he came mm-hmm. down. Yeah. A bunch of guys from California. There was, I think, six of them from California that came down. And mm-hmm. we've got a cabin up in, in the mountains where right in the middle of some of the best Merriam's country in the and, and definitely in the state of New Mexico and based on everywhere else I've hunted pretty much everywhere I've been. So yeah. it, uh, they, him and several of his buddies came and hunted with us a number of years ago. That's so awesome. How'd, how'd they get hooked into you? Uh, we were there. There was a forum. I think it, there used to be a forum in California called NorCal. Did you ever hear of NorCal? I think no. so. I it was NorCal something. I don't know. But but anyway, it was, I had gotten, you know, this was way back when, when I first started getting on turkey hunting forums and I just happened to get on that one and he was on it and we just made contact and started talking about trying to hunt together. So awesome. it was, it was great experience. Joe's a, you know, him, him and Shane both, but you know, Joe's got, won the gobbling contest and all that stuff in them a couple of times and he knows the stuff for sure oh yeah right. did you uh was he using that that gobbling when he was hunting with you guys no not that i'm aware of I, he didn't actually we didn't hunt together basically mm. he went on joey his son was was with him and uh, they basically hunted together while they were here just so, kind of shared camp yeah mm-hmm. yeah we you know Stayed at our place up in the mountains. Yeah. So seems you've you've made quite a few acquaintances and hunted with people that you've met in forums online. Yeah, well it's it's some of it's been on forums, like you know, I've half the guys on our turkey hunting team, you know, our contest team, I've hunted with several of them. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I decided, hey, let's put some of the guys that have hunted together together on that team and then a lot of the contacts like you know some of the stuff was through the turkey federation well i used to be real involved with the turkey federation here in the state i was a state chapter president for you know about 15 years and uh, a lot of that stuff you know i just met people through that yeah what 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 type of stuff would you do for them then as the as the president of the state chapter well, you know, we got we started the state chapter in, in an effort to try to do what we could on two fronts. One was, you know, obviously trying to, to raise money to support wild turkey projects here in the state. And the other thing was basically to at back when we started it, the reg, the hunting regulations for wild turkeys in New Mexico were pretty screwed up. And, uh, you know, they for instance, if you bought a deer hunting license in the fall, they just gave you a free turkey hunting license. And, you know, people could shoot them with a rifle when they were deer hunting or whatever. And part of our, you know, the stuff we did was to try to 
you know, bring the turkey hunting regulations up to date and not just allow them as a consolation prize for deer hunters. Right. You know, that was, yeah, we'd had a maybe 20 years worth of, of uh, spring turkey hunting by that time. And we had, you know, had a pretty big turkey population and not that many hunters, which has changed some now. But we were going, you know, those of us that were serious turkey hunters were going, you know, we had a relatively short season. It was about nine days at that time. We said, there was a group of us, all of us part of the Turkey Federation. And we, we went to the game and fish department and said, look, you don't have hardly anybody hunting turkeys here at all. We've got lots of turkeys. Why do you have such a short season in the spring? And why are you only allowing one, one turkey during the season? So through those efforts, we basically got, you know, got, we eliminated all the consolation prize stuff in the fall with the deer, deer hunting and stuff. And we also got this spring season extended as well as moved into the time frame that we thought it should be. They were starting it too early, like some of these southern states still are doing. You know, they were starting the, the hunts before the uh, birds were breeding. So we got them to move the season back to the middle of <clears throat> starting date in the middle of April. Got them to extend the season to basically a month rather than nine days. And then we got them eventually to go to a two bird limit, and which is what we still have. And uh, so anyway, that was nine days. Sounds horrible. Yeah. Well, I know you guys up there got some more of those those uh, stratified seasons where you you've got a certain time period. I'm sure you're yeah. right with what that when, is. When it first started, it was five five day period, and you usually got drawn every third year. Or so. It was, it was even more restricted than what you guys were doing down there. But now your season is, you still have some some stratification, but you've also got um, where you don't have to draw, right? Or, right. Or you we, can got, buy, we can buy them over the counter, and in total, we'll, you'd be able to hunt three weeks if you didn't fill your tag. Yeah. Well, or that's around three weeks or whatever. Yeah. But you, you have to wait, depending on when you buy your tag. Uh, the last 10 days of May, you can get back out there to try to, to fill that tag that you didn't fill in the earlier season. So if you want to start off when the season starts in mid-April, you're going to have to wait until the last 10 days of May in the late season to kind of get back out there. But that is one of the things that does suck is that we do only get one week, uh, when we buy our tag, um, fortunately, you know, me and Paul are lucky enough to fill our tag in that time period. Um, I, I would say we're a little bit spoiled because uh, being right next door to Wisconsin, that in my opinion, has like some of the most affordable, if not the most affordable non-resident tags in the country. Um, you know, you can buy the bonus tags for late season. So they let you buy as many as are available so we can continue to go week after week after week until either the tags are gone or the season ends. So luckily with the, the states that we're surrounded by, me and Paul are 
we're able to kind of keep hunting as soon as the season starts. And he gets started a little bit early. He goes down south. Um, but yeah, you know, you go down the Mississippi, I think, don't you, Paul? But I've seen well, last last spring was my first trip to Mississippi, and for for a while, when I first started, it was Georgia for like ten years or so in a row, and then a couple trips to Arkansas and here and there. Yeah, those uh, hunting those southern states is a little bit different than than hunting our part of the country, huh? Both <laughs> up where there as are and where where I'm at, so right. Well, you, I would imagine you're pretty pretty much mountainous terrain where, you, where you're hunting them. Yeah, the Merriams are, are in the mountains here, you know, and the Rios are in the river bottoms away from the mountains, like the Rio Grande Valley, which is the valley I live in, north of where I live, about eh, 75 to 100 miles. There's There are a few Rios along the river, but, you know, they, they just get pounded so much by, and there's limited habitat, so... I really haven't ever seriously hunted them. I like hunting those mountain birds better. So, I, yeah. I would I would venture to guess the the habitat in the valleys I would imagine is pretty pretty arid conditions. Yeah, we're you know I live except for being right down in the valley here on the Rio Grande. <clears throat> everything around me personally is is desert. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, I'm at about four thousand feet. The Merriam's turkeys that we hunt are a hundred miles east of uh, or west of where I'm at, and they're at eight thousand to ten thousand feet. So that's the difference in elevation we have. So, yeah. And I might be mistaken, but aren't aren't generally tree 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 lines? Isn't that about the ten foot ten thousand foot elevation where the tree line stops? That's right about where it starts here yeah and right. but we were <clears throat> mainly the mountains that i hunt in they run up to right at timberline we do right. have a couple of areas that are above timberline but most of the country i hunt is you know just under ten thousand feet down to about eight thousand or seventy five hundred wow. so it's so, sounds sounds pretty similar to when i where i where I, where I'd elk hunt in southwestern Colorado. Oh, yeah. I think the top of where we'd hunt would top out about 9,500. And then as you got down into the valley, it was right around that 8,000 foot mark, you know, 7,500, where it went from, you know, arid, super dry to where the mountainside was squeezing the moisture out of the clouds every fall and whatever. Yeah, where did you it was a little but around what community did you end up elk hunting there? We were in the Uncapadre National Forest, and it would have been outside of... What was it, Gunnison? Somewhere around... Yeah, I want to say outside of Gunnison. South of Durango, I want to say. Southwest. Oh, we're right south, southwest portion of the state. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've turkey hunted up in that country around, well, east of Durango and... Basically around Pagosa Springs, which is that southwest quadrant of Colorado, and that place amazes me that it's got some of the best-looking turkey habitat I've ever seen for Merriam's turkeys I've ever seen, and there are just hardly any birds there. It, it just is <laughs> we, hard to believe, you know. We, we got to see a few when we were out elk hunting, you know. But and I, I think that one of the guys that we were we would go bow hunting. One of the guys they think had a tag one time but 
we we didn't really bother with them. We were just elk and mule deer and stuff like that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> hopefully you had a great trip when you came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a pretty good time. Tell them yeah. about the bear. The bear. Tell them about the bear. Yeah. Well, I, I was, you know, I was just walking the crest, just lower than the crest of this ridge, and I just kind of was kind of traversing along it. And I noticed below me, there's a bear walking, kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing. And he's maybe a hundred yards down the hill from me. And I'm just, you know, I wanted to hunt the area in front of me and he was kind of heading that way. So I just kind of wanted to keep up with him and see where he was going and whatnot. And then after following him or following along with him, he turned and come up the hill on a deer trail straight at me. And he was coming and I was like, well, I think it's about time I get out and spook him away when he got to be, you know, 60, 70 yards away. So I stepped out from behind the tree and all I had was my bow with me. And I waved my arms at him and I'm like, yeah, bear, yeah, you know, figuring he'd see me and turn around and run like all the other bears we'd seen. And he was a pretty good sized brown bear or cinnamon. I think it was cinnamon colored. Black and, uh, bear. Yeah. And he, um, he <clears throat> looked at me. And he looked behind himself and he looked back at me. And he looked behind himself and he looked back at me. And I'm like, oh no, this didn't work out quite the way I planned. I, I grabbed an arrow and I had my knife in the other hand and I started screaming at him, come on, you mother bleeper, let's go. And he looked at me a couple more times and then he, I guess he decided where he wanted to go it wasn't that important. And he turned around and walked, walked down the hill. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, you don't, don't ever know what you're going to get when you encounter a bear in this country, for sure. So yeah. sometimes right. they just fall ass away, and sometimes they they come towards you. So I had another instance while I was out there. I was sitting on the edge of this meadow, and it was just getting light out. And I hear something walking through the through the weeds, and I'm like, man, it's right there. If it's an elk, it should be right there. I should be able to see it. There's nothing there. And I'm watching, I'm watching, and all of a sudden, like 15 yards away from me, a cub bear comes out into the opening out of the grass where I can finally see him. And he looks at me and he bawls and screams and turns and runs away. And I did the exact same thing in the opposite direction as fast as I could. And luckily, I was, yeah. running, I was running down the hill. And I suppose it was probably, and I was flying. I was a young buck and I was going downhill. I bet I was cooking 25 miles an hour. My feet were barely touching the ground. Now it's probably 100 yards away before I look back to see nothing was chasing after me. Yeah. That's <laughs> the best thing to do is get out, but especially with those cubs. You don't want to hang right. around. You don't know is. So. Well, if he, if he wouldn't have bawled or like, like he did, you know, I probably would have tried to sneak out of there. But since he put the alarm call out, I was like, uh-oh. It was just a split-second yeah. split decision, and I just decided it was best just not to be around. Yep. I, I think so. Jim, you guys have a lot of bears over in New Mexico, right? Uh, we've got a pretty good population. Um, you know, you hardly ever see them here. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there's, they, we have, you know, a bear season and they have a, it's fairly restrictive. They, you know, the state's divided into hunting units and they allow X number of bears to be taken in each unit. So, you know, but there are. I see a bear maybe once every five years, yeah. you know. Are they allowing dogs or is it baiting or? 
no baiting. It's, it's, uh, the, I, you know, I'm not a bear hunter, so I really don't pay attention to the regulations that much, but I know there's no baiting. I think there is a dog, you know, season where they can use dogs. I'm pretty yeah. sure. But no baiting for sure. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I, uh, I heard Paul mention uh, national forests and I think if I'm correct, I'm not sure if, if you're aware of it. I think the very first national forest in this country was in New Mexico, right? Uh, I'm not sure about the national forest. Mm-hmm. Now, the first wilderness area, national wilderness area, the Gila wilderness. Yeah. It was the first designated wilderness in the country. Okay. But I'm not a national forest thing. Okay. So. That might be, that might be where, what I'm referring to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's in the Southwest. It's a big wilderness in the Southwest part of the state. Mm-hmm. And so... And you said so, you're southeast. I work. I'm kind of right in the center of the state in okay. the southern, you know, twenty five percent basically, just sure. just north of the of the southern border is where Las Cruces is. Yeah. So, have you, been, you guys? Have you been to that wilderness area? Oh yeah, yeah. I <clears throat> I, I hunt there occasionally. Yeah. You know, just to do something different. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it's just a giant area. You know, when you take the whole area into consideration, there are a lot of turkeys there. But it's such a giant area that is basically you've got to either walk in or horseback in that you've got to cover, sometimes cover a bunch of country to find those turkeys that are in there. So it's a, it's, it's a difficult place to hunt if you're not really familiar with it, yeah. you know. So... so- I guess that's a question that I have for you, especially like considering with like Western hunting where, you know, I mean, you come out to the Midwest and I'm sure there's even like places like this, maybe somewhere in the South, but you can have parcels that can be anywhere from, you know, a few hundred acres, a few thousand acres and and more. Um, But I would say, you know, a lot of the, the Western parcels are they're very huge. They're very big. So what do you do in the case that when you when you hike in to an area like that, right? You, you hike in, you go deep, and then you find birds. And I know like Miriams are very nomadic and they they have their own, you know, like all other turkeys, they have their agenda they're going to do that day. So in the case that you go out there, you find some birds they don't feel like playing ball and they just vanish. What does a guy do then? Yeah. Well, you know, I, although I've hunted a lot of places and quite a few places in the West, I have not found them to be that nomadic. Mm-hmm. The, the birds that I've mainly hunted are pretty much, you know, home, home bodies in terms of staying pretty close. Yeah, a lot of times just in the same either same group of trees or in the same general area every night, and uh, you know every place I've hunted for Merriams, it's it's just a question of covering country and inspiring them to gobble. Yeah, I mean that's the whole thing, and you know you can, and also reels are the same way, and easterns and uh, you know ghouls for sure, are the mm-hmm. same way. They will respond to a 
you know, well-placed locator call. And aquariums in particular, this giant country that we hunt in, and, you know, all these mountain ranges that they, they exist in, they're scattered out and they can be, you know, 10, 15 miles between flocks of turkeys here. And you, you don't cover that walking, you no. know, you cover it using a vehicle of some sort and using the road system to find out where they're at. Yeah. So, so when you're, when you're doing something like that, will you, uh, will you work ridge systems out there? I don't know. I don't know exactly how well that works. So the, the closest I've ever gotten to mountains would probably be the black Hills. Um, I've done both South Dakota and Wyoming and uh yeah it was one of those things where i ended up like day day one no day one i did about 10 miles and that's because i showed up i think i didn't get there till maybe like 2 p.m or something like that but the very next day where i was there the entire day sun up to sundown i ended up putting about 16 miles on and that's brutal that's but i guess you western guys are kind of used to kind of doing stuff like that but well I, I remember in my younger years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I remember uh walking uh it was like a ridge system with little fingers and uh shoot man, it, like you were saying, it's you know, it's one thing to look at it on the onyx, you know, um and be like, Okay, yeah, I can hit this spot and this spot and this spot, but then once you start kind of walking these areas you're like, shoot, it's about three miles from this spot to this spot to this spot, you know? And next thing you know, yeah. you get back to the truck and it's it's taking you a long time. But um, yeah, so I guess let's talk a little bit about how does Jim Bates hunt turkeys? Oh, I want to I wanna back him up just a little bit with this involvement with the NWTF and whatnot. Yeah. So it sounds like you were involved with the NWTF I mean, pretty early in the um, turkey hunting in in, North, in, um, in Mexico, New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, were, were, were you guys? Did you have um, like an original flock of turkeys you were working with, or are you, were you were you involved in any any restocking or stuff like that? Well, we were fortunate in the the mountain ranges in in the state of New Mexico had you know indigenous populations had native populations of Merriams and we really didn't need to to do much you know transplant sort of stuff here but we did you know what during my involvement with the Turkey Federation we did trap birds to send to other places in fact a lot of those birds you're talking about up there in South Dakota and, and Wyoming are original stock from New Mexico you know, in fact, some of the areas that I actually hunt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but we didn't really need to stock birds here. And, you know, our our population was pretty healthy and it has continued to be. But the only thing we really needed to do was straighten out the, the hunting regulations so that they were a little more acceptable to yeah. what we needed to do. Did you ever get involved in any of the on-ground participation with as far as trapping them with the, with oh, the yeah. cats and stuff you were you got involved with that yeah yeah i imagine that had to be a pretty cool time it is you know we had a in fact by our place up in the in the mountains 
we trapped birds right off of our property one one time and it was pretty funny because i mean the operation you know how they have the the drop nets or the cannon nets or whatever they use we had drop nets on the ones that we did and uh, you know you go hide up in the in the bushes above where the, the you're baiting these birds to come here and so anyway it was it was pretty comical you know those birds sit there in the in 25 degree temperatures waiting for those birds to come down and get under that drop net then when they drop the net everybody runs down there and you're grabbing turkeys to keep them from getting hurt and stuff but we had a on the property we were hunting this is kind of a side thing there was a a big old hereford bull that was on this property and it was pretty funny because as soon as we got those turkeys in the net and everybody in this bull was just wandering around right in between everybody wondering what we were doing you know with trying to catch these turkeys it was pretty funny <laughs> so anyway great but yeah, I've been involved with the trapping and transplanting, and also that we did some a big research project up in the mountains on Merriam's, and I, you know, spent a lot of time helping the game and fish department with that stuff, and uh, so I've been pretty actively involved with the with the uh, state agencies in terms of turkey management here for, yeah. you know. Cool. I faded away recently just because I've gotten old enough where I don't want to mess with that stuff anymore. Yeah. Um, I think uh, if I'm correct here, um, I think New Mexico is to Miriam's as uh, Missouri is with Easterns, I think, when it comes – because I know a lot of the uh, Easterns that were restocked, at least in the northern states, they all kind of came from Missouri – and from what I've read, it sounds like that's the case with New Mexico. A lot of the 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 restocking, it, they came from New Mexico. So I, I think New Mexico is like kind of the purest form of the Miriams, correct? Uh, at, you know, Miriams are basically native to New Mexico, Colorado, and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Those are the three that they're native to. And we probably have at least as much habitat as either one of those other states does in terms of the native range. And so, you know, yeah, naturally with our pretty much stable population forever, that that's was logical for them to, to trap a lot of those birds from here. Now I'm sure they've, they've transplanted birds from both Arizona and Colorado to different places too. But, Mm -hmm. but yeah, they did, a lot of the birds that were stocked, Merriam's and stocked, especially the Northwest and, the, you know, the upper Western states were came, a lot of them came from New Mexico. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So with, um, <clears throat> I guess with your, you're saying that you, you pretty much had an indigenous population and the turkeys were doing pretty well, you know, back when most states were struggling and were doing transplant and whatnot and has has the population changed much over the years since you first started? I mean, did you see the boom cycle and the, you know, kind of a bust cycle that most most states you hear about, or is it is it been pretty consistent as far as you're aware of? Well, it's, you know, I think our populations have been pretty stable. Uh, we do have, you know, the the drying climate is definitely impacting them. You know, especially we're talking about the Gila, the Gila wilderness area in the southwestern part of the state. 
that was a pretty dry forest type to begin with. And it's getting drier all the time, you know, and, the, and you've heard about the wildfires that are going on out here in the West. And a lot of the turkey habitat in the last 10 or 15 years has burned. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, uh, Wait, I, wait. The way some people talk, though, it means it sounds like burning is possibly, you know, good for it as far as for the future, as far as creating pulp cover and stuff like that. Yeah, it is. If it's not just a, you know, a catastrophic type fire that just burns sure. to the ground, which is what we've been having in the, some of these places that didn't used to experience that kind of thing. Right. So it's probably shutting it down for a number of years, you know, five five, six, seven, eight, ten years, and with it being so dry, it probably takes a, a while for it to regenerate, I would imagine, huh? A long time, a long time. We, we've got we've got places that were burned 20 years ago when the conditions were even better, you know, to keep it from being the catastrophic type fire. And some of those places that I saw burned when I was young are still in the recovery stage. Sure. So it's... Uh, takes a long time out here in this, this western country and in the southwest in particular just because it's so dry to begin with yeah uh, but, uh well so i guess to kind of get back to the question i was asking is like uh so how does jim bates hunt turkeys how what's 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 your style what's what's your method what is it that you do what's your routine well well you know hunting here and where I do with these turkeys that we have, like I said before, you got turkeys that are in small or relatively small areas of a great big country, you know. So the first thing I learned hunting here is that, and applies everywhere, you know, common sense, is that you've got to find the birds first. Yeah. And the one thing I learned from when I first started hunting is that you do that uh, from a macro level. You don't do it by assuming that there's turkeys in little parcels. You know, you, you, you have to realize that you've got to cover lots of country to find them. Yeah. And once again, our birds, Merriam's in particular, are very susceptible to, to locating tactics. And so once I figured it out, it, basically my, my ABCs of turkey hunting are locate birds on the roost, go to them, you know, take used calling tactics that all of us use once we learn how to turkey hunt and mm -hmm. hope that one comes in, you know, yeah. and, and just move to do what you got to do to try to you know, maneuver into a place that they want to come to. And if you don't get one that way, you go on to the next one. And that's right. my theory. You just keep moving until you find one that wants to play the game. Yeah. So. Um, so I know when I was over in Wyoming, they seemed to, uh, they seem to kind of favor the crow call. Um, it, what's uh, been your experience, I guess, with what, what they like, uh, what locators they like? Crow call is a, is probably the staple of most of the people that I hunt with. Yeah. You know, now, I, I think you asked me one time on the forum what how how I locate turkeys. Mm -hmm. I locate 
by using a tube to gobble. Yep. And, you know, uh, using a tube called a gobble, it carries a long ways, <clears throat> and they will almost, well, I, I can go down and places where people can blow crow calls or peacock or whatever they want to use, go behind them using a gobble tube and get turkeys to gobble that the, that they never can get to gobble. In mm -hmm. fact, the guy with they just when we when we hunt they always want to go with me in the morning because i they know that i'm going to be able to find the birds that we're you know yeah but yeah after our our conversation i did go out and i bought a i bought a tube call because i know you told me you're using the tube call um and i was going out there and i did it um me i've actually i've pulled back from that i know out west is a little bit different but yeah. over here in the Midwest, I've pulled back from that a little bit and I really, I just kind of let the woods do their thing. You know, I'll just pull up to an area and I'll, I'll, I'll sit on my tailgate of the truck or so I'll just walk around the truck, you know, and just kind of let the woods do their thing. And then when nothing's happening around gobbling time, I'll, I'll hit the owl. If the owl's not doing anything, well, for the morning, I kind of stick to the owl. Uh, in the evening, I'll use a coyote as well. Um, but if nothing's going on with that, then that's kind of when I start moving on. But I did uh, utilize your technique with the gobbling. Um, I was just kind of not that good at it. You know, it's <laughs> it's kind of hard to, to, to get that thing right. But I ended up getting, uh, it was a Primo's one, the uh, the Foggy Bottom Primo's, I think is what it was called. But uh, what what kind of tube call do you use? Uh, I think the one I use is a Quaker Boy. Mm -hmm. I think I've got several of them. Yeah. And the one I'm using now is just it's an old Quaker Boy tube that I got probably back in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Well, Jim, if I'm not mistaken, you you make your own diaphragm calls too. Yeah, yeah. I started doing that about ten do, years ago. So, do you use them for goblin at all, or? Uh. I can, but they, to me, I can't make as loud. I think the key is the loudness. Sure. And I can make a heck of a loud gobble on a tube call, and I can't do it quite as loudly on a on a uh, diaphragm. I mean, I can make it. You know, I'm. You would never mistake my gobbling on anything that I use for a real gobble, but I basically am just trying to get the loudness more than anything else right. and, uh, the loudness and probably the cadence or whatever yeah you know all of us have if you've been, turkey hunted very long you know that if you see a group of gobblers if one of those birds gobbles the other ones gobble right on top of it i mean you we've all seen that and that's where i eventually figured this out i'm going you don't have to be super realistic you just have to to spark that instinctive gobble mm -hmm. you know dot gobble out of those birds that's right. that's all you do yeah. so i'm not i don't concern myself about the realism so much as trying to hit that gobble loudness that when it hits them they they don't have any choice but to respond to it yeah and, and you know my and once again talking about hunting western birds it is, I mean, I, uh, 
you know, I can, I have just gotten where if I don't hear a turkey respond to that call, I don't think there's one there. You know, that's that's the way I think about it. And I'll just move until I find one. Sure. That'll, that'll, you know, what's funny is uh, I actually still go by what you told me when you said you give one area, you'll give it about two tries. And you, you told me yeah. if there's a bird there, normally it'll gobble about that second go that if the, it doesn't gobble by that second go, it's, it's probably not there. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and you know, I know there could always be some tight lipped bird in the area, but that, that 15, 20 minutes of that right time in the morning, is just so, or in the, in the evening as well, it's, it's a precious moment that I don't want to sacrifice. So it's like, all right, let's move, let's move, let's move, you know. And I think that's a that's a mistake that I think people make everywhere, but particularly here in in hunting western birds, Rios and Merriams, Goulds to a degree, is that you've got to you've got to do that locating in the window that they're going to respond to it. Yeah. And around here, it's right about 10 minutes after the sunset, maybe 15 minutes after sunset, when it's just starting, you're starting to see the, the light fade enough where things are getting blurry for about 20 minutes. That's, that's prime time, you know, and if they're going to gobble, they will gobble during that period. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing here, our Western birds here will do the same thing at dark. I've hunted places Easterns in particular, where, you know, you don't have nearly as good a chance of getting a bird to gobble right at dark in the evening. But our birds out here, they'll do the same thing in the evening, you know, and, and then, of course, in the morning, you know, from 15 minutes or half an hour before sunrise until sunrise, that's the prime time to, for finding the birds here with a locator as well yeah so um when are, you, are you are you hitting them earlier than that or are you hitting the one that's you know still pretty dark out or are you waiting for it to lighten up yeah that's i i will start you know if you're looking at the eastern horizon and you're starting to see that orange or red glow on the eastern horizon that's when i start and and sometimes you'll get birds to gobble in pitch black i mean our we have bird, birds that roost on our property up in the mountains here that literally will, we don't ever hardly ever hunt them because they're just kind of like, you know, we, we have them around there just because the people that come up there, we let them listen to them and stuff. And so we don't hunt them much, but these birds will, when we get out to go in the morning, an hour before daylight, if you slam a truck door or something, those birds will gobble to it. Yeah. So, yeah. So they'll gobble real early for sure. It's been a rare occasion where I've, where I've heard Easterns fire up in the complete darkness. Um, I think one time was, was in Missouri. I heard it and owl sparked them off and it was, it was pitch black. Like you say, it wasn't even inkling a sunrise. And then um, the other time would have been I was going to go call for my my boss and his kids down here in southeastern Minnesota. And at the time, there was a, like a record flood running through the Mississippi River Valley. 
and we were hunting the bluffs just out of the Mississippi River Valley, and I'm thinking it was a lot of the birds that got displaced at the time moved up into the bluffs, and there was so much competition that when I got there, I pulled out of the truck at, you know, quarter after four in the morning, and sunrise wasn't for another two hours, and the turkeys were already gobbling. It, it just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah, they'll do that occasionally, and then there'll be those days the next day after that, they won't gobble at all. You know, that's that's kind of a weird deal. Right. I've never, for right. sure. Do Miriams yeah. behave that way? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, four or five years ago, I hunted this this one canyon that uh, I went in there the first morning of the season, and there were probably 15 gobblers within earshot. And I was the only one in there. I didn't shoot, didn't, you know, I worked the birds, but wasn't able to get them, get one in where I could get a shot. Didn't disturb them at all. And as far as I know, nobody else did. Went back in there the very next day. The conditions were exactly the same. And there's one bird that was gobbling in there when there was at before. Under, under identical conditions one day apart. And it was, wow. you know, just never know what you're going to get, I suppose. Yeah, right. Yeah. Find the weather, you know, changes in weather affects affects so much in in that area. You know, seeing as you get such extreme climates, you know, from super cold in the winter to you know real warm in the summer, you find weather's a big a big factor in goblin activity. Not really. Uh, the biggest factor is the wind. You know, we get this Western country. It's pretty typical for the whole West, I think, is that these higher mountain ranges get, you know, pretty significant winds during the springtime. And that's the thing that'll really impact them. And I'm not so sure that it impacts their gobbling as much as it impacts your ability to hear them gobbling, you know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, on the windy mornings, it's entirely different ball game here, you know. Yeah. But if you can get a or a calm evening, it's, you know, surefire bet, bet using a locator to find them. So, uh, Have you seen, uh, how do Miriams react to pressure? Because, like, I know out here, or, you know, Easterns, <laughs> once they start feeling enough pressure, they'll either, you know, move on to some private property where they're not getting hunted or not getting hunted as bad as the, the public. Uh, and then some of them will you know, they'll get quiet. They just won't talk. You know, they'll resort to drumming only. And uh, I know this was during uh, 2020, you know, with COVID when people were not working, some some people and all that. And I know in some of the uh, the heavier hunted areas, what I was noticing is the birds stopped gobbling in the morning or very few would gobble in the morning and they would but they would gobble in the evening when nobody was there. So I would go out to roost birds and I'd hear them light up, you know, a whole valley, you know, and they were gobbling pretty good. And then in the morning, I'd maybe only hear two of the seven that I heard. And my, my thought process was they know in the morning there's guys walking up to their trees. They're getting called at this and all that. So I think they resort, they resorted to drumming, in the morning or simply just calling the hens by in the evening, letting the hens know where they're at. Uh, 
And then once the sun comes up, it got too risky to start calling around. So I think they were doing all the work in the evening. And I'm sure the hens kind of caught on to that, maybe seeing guys getting busted and all that stuff. But um, so that was a very interesting time period. But I'm curious as to uh, when it comes to Miriam's, uh, how, how do they react to pressure? Same way. Yeah, that that, you know, the birds are definitely our birds are definitely more inclined to gobble. Regardless. You know, I can go out all through the season, even through the last day after the, these birds have been pressured for a month and still find birds that'll gobble. But there's a big difference around here between hearing one that'll gobble to your calling and actually calling them in. I mean, that, you know, that you're, you're talking about one of the age-old debates among turkey hunters about whether turkeys can actually associate turkey calling with danger mm-hmm. and I without a, any hesitation whatsoever that my experience indicates that they are perfectly capable of learning you know yes. to avoid turkey calling so my but, opinion but, on that to what I think is probably the most um, practical or realistic situation with that is of course I don't think they have the logic to think oh hey that's a human doing it but I think when they live in an area they become familiar with all the voices in the area so you know I've heard it said when somebody's trying to imitate a friend of yours one of their voices and then someone's like oh hey Jim maybe at first you'll be like what yeah hello uh you know what's up you know but then the more that imitator starts to speak, you're going to be like, wait, that isn't Dave. Dave does not sound like that, you know. And so I think what would happen, though, uh, with the case of the turkeys is that's the sort of thing they maybe not familiar with it. It's a new voice. And then they show up to that area and they see a human or they get shot at. And then I think they believe they, they start to associate the the imitative calling and locations with, you know, uh, a, a bad experience. So I think they'll show up to some of these areas if nobody's calling there, because there's no reason for them to fear, fear anything at that point. But if they hear a human calling from that location, they have enough experiences in that spot to be weary of that. So, so that's kind of my theory on what i think is the logic behind that you know yeah i agree i, I you know there is you know we talk about net negative influences and positive influences and that's you know that applies to any organism you know that you know that's how they teach rats to run through a maze is by positive reinforcement and the same thing applies to, to turkeys i mean some people I don't know why they want to deny it, that it's possible, but it is, you know, it's just, it's animal science. It's just the way all living organisms survive is they, they have to adapt to conditions that are positive or negative in their environment. Yeah. So anyway, it's, but that's it. But I, I'm always amazed at how certain people can insist that turkeys 
are not capable of, of learning, you know, through negative and positive reinforcement. Yeah. But, um, I've, I've argued that point so many times on, on the forum that I've just gotten, I was going, you know, believe what you want to believe. It, the fact of the matter is that if you don't understand that fact and adapt your hunting tactics to it, it's just going to hurt your ability to call turkeys. That, I mean, to kill turkeys if you don't understand that. Yes. So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Some of these people that have that opinion, you know, it's, I don't know... I don't know how some of these guys can maybe even get that opinion. I guess because if you're looking at it, like in theory, it's like, well, you're making turkey sounds. Why would a turkey be afraid of turkey sounds? But I think I think they are smart enough to to learn when this isn't a voice that I've heard in the area. And I think they'll they'll give it a try at first, which is why, in my experience, your first encounter with a bird is normally the best encounter. Absolutely, no yeah. doubt about it. But then either, like you were saying, you show up the next day or something, maybe you didn't even call in the bird or something like that, but I think just that interaction, even if nothing happens, it's almost like every day that goes by, that bird begins to get less responsive to your calling. Right. Uh, I, I, I'm going to take it maybe a step farther and you know, it, it may be related to, you know, the area that you're calling from, you know, since a week before, two weeks before the season, there's been constantly people walking up and down that road or that ridge line or that trail or that path down that ridge calling and calling and calling. And, the, you know, the turkeys in the area are going to get used to that and know what's up. And they hear the calling coming from areas that people are usually calling from. They're probably a little less likely to come into it. Whereas if you come in from a completely hardly inaccessible area and you're down in, you know, some real tough spot to get to. And then you start calling the turkeys in the area. You're like, well, you know, generally there aren't people down there and they'll be more willing to come into an area like that than if you're up on the up on the trail or on the road where everybody else has been calling to him for the last month and a half i agree and uh, completely with that you know it's but it all comes back to the fact that that with a, enough of a certain either positive or negative negative stimulus they will learn from that experience. Well, they, they they've proven it in in studies i think with chamberlain where they've tagged tagged turkeys and you know, not just a couple of days after the opening of the season, you know, before up to that point, they found that the turkeys were using the roadways and the trails and everything just like the same places humans would use. But then when the season opened up and the humans started influencing the area, the turkeys stopped using all them roads and trails and whatever that the humans were on. And it, and it could only be through negative. Yeah. Yeah, we've got... One thing about the turkeys in this part of the country, and Merriam's in particular, is that the habitat type is such that there's a lot of <clears throat> farmland and agriculture in these op open canyon bottoms. So the turkeys in the off season, you can drive down the roads here and see, you know, I, I used to drive around up in the mountains where I hunt and see two or three hundred turkeys just driving around in the morning, you know, in these open areas. And you wait until a week after the season starts, and 
don't see any of those turkeys anymore in those so bottoms. That would, would that be considered winter flocks then when you say the off season? Yeah, you know, from, from the time you would normally start looking for turkeys for the spring hunt and, you know, some of it, I used to go up a month before and, and just drive the roads and look at the birds and see what was, see how the population was doing. And, you know, the composition of hen flocks and poults and gobblers and that, and, you know, that's the, all those different components, as soon as those birds are aware that something different's going on in terms of people harassing them or shooting at them or whatever, their habits, habits change completely, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask when you were kind of talking about your tactics and stuff, uh, uh, you know, roost, roost hunting, um, how tight do you get in on the roost? You know, cause I know when I went out to Wyoming, I pushed it pretty close one day and I think I got to about 80 yards, but from what I gather with Miriam's, it sounds like you don't have to push it that close, right? Well, obviously it depends on my evaluation as to how close I'm going to get is completely dependent upon the amount of trees and, you know, something to obscure my approach to mm -hmm. them. I won't, and and a lot of our forest type is relatively open. It's not like the stuff you got back there where it's just, you know, thicker than can be. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's relatively open stuff. But I'll try to get as close as I can as long as I'm pretty certain that the birds are not going to be able to see me. Yeah. You know. And uh, But I also believe that the closer you get, the more you need to shut up. Because, you know, not, not do... Of course, I don't do much calling to birds on the roost anyway, but you, you definitely, if you get close enough where those birds think they have to be able to see you and, and also, uh, you know, make the correlation that, hey, I'm hearing a hen down here on the ground calling too early right below me and I can't see her and she shouldn't be down there in this time of the morning in the dark. I think all those things kind of accumulate in terms of whether or not a bird will, you know, respond to that or not. Right. And, that, and, and just that situation that you explained it, and it just may, you know, naturally put them on alarm, you know, even if it doesn't spook them out of the area, it may put them on alarm just for the fact that it's unusual for that head to be down there so early and right and to be calling. Yeah. And I think those, those situations you know, I know that there's a lot of people, or it seems like to me, based on what the conversations that we see on the forum and stuff, is that there's seems like there's a lot of newer hunters that try to just get in as tight as they can to the roost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically, that, it, that even if they're not shooting those birds right off the limb, they're basically just shooting birds that are coming down, you know, and landing in the morning on right. on the ground, not really calling them or anything. And you know, I'm not that I'm condemning that, but I'm just going, you know, if you you, you want to advocate advocate as being a turkey hunter in the use of a turkey call, 
and yet you're killing birds just by getting close to the roost and shooting them as soon as they come off the roost. There's, you know, that's kind of a paradox, if you ask me, to, to justify that. I actually ran into some young guys out in Missouri last spring. And I'd, I'd met them earlier in the trip in the campground and talked to them. They seemed like pretty decent guys. But then I had a, a deal where I was out hunting, and it was on the roost, and I and I was in the wrong area to start out with, but I could hear the gobblers, you know, just barely faintly off in the distance. And by the time I got over to them, it was about fly down time or whatever. And I think, you know, I did end up spooking a gobbler out of the tree that wasn't gobbling on my way over there. And I got to this one bird, and the closer I got to him, I kind of thought he was a Jake. And by the time I got set up, he had gone into, you know, from his gobble kind of Jake, gobble, gobble, into some kikis and stuff like that. So and then I hear the Jake yelping, and then I was like pretty sure it was a Jake. But I heard some other gobblers in the area, and I was just going to sit tight and see how it played out. And all of a sudden, I see this movement in front of me. And it was one of the guys that I would met earlier in the week. And I didn't know it at the time until I got up to him, but he walked, you know, he was only 60 yards away from me. He walked in front of me, heading towards his Jake was yelping, and he got just to the edge of the rise where, where it dropped off down to where the Jake was, and he pulls out his phone. And he gets on his phone, and he starts calling right away. And I'm like, oh, I know what he's doing. He's calling his two other buddies that I had met earlier. And he's going to tell him that I'm ready to walk down on this Jake. Be ready on the other end in case he comes squirting out. Yeah. So I hollered. I kind of got his attention. Hey, hey. And he waved at me and I walked over. And the first thing I said to him, I said, well, you know what you're doing is illegal. And he's he's like, well, what's that? And I said, you're using your cell phones to make a turkey drive with your buddies on the other end. Oh no no! I just called him to let him let let him know where I was at, so I didn't get shot. I'm like, yeah, you called him to let him know you were about ready to walk down in there, so they didn't shoot you when you're walking down in there. Yeah, it was, you know, and I just pretty much threw my arms up at the whole deal, and I said, "You guys are over yeah. that way. Your buddies are over that way. I'm going this way. Have have a good rest of your life." Yeah, well, and that. You know, that's another thing that's that's happened around here, at least in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, our the, the number of spring turkey hunters has basically doubled in the last 10 years here, you know, and it's and the harvest has, too. And it's definitely yeah. taken back on. It's that resident, resident increases or non-resident increases or both? You think? Well, it's both. But I mean, it's, you know, I think most of it's resident. There's just more and more people out here, in the, you know, for, for decades out here in the West, big game has been, you know, the number one, right? you know, elk and deer and antelope and everything else. And turkeys weren't even on the radar for a lot of people. And now, you know, people are taking up turkey hunting because just like, we are here, you know, it's so much fun and, and in such an enjoyable way to hunt. Right. And you get to do it in the spring when there's no other hunting seasons open. Yeah, exactly. That's, and that's basically why I started doing it way back in the sixties and seventies, you know, it was, a it, it was just something that you didn't, you couldn't hunt anything else in the spring. So let's go turkey hunt. Right. Well, well, up here, it's wait for the ice to get off the lake so you can go ice fishing or go fishing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that we hardly have fishing around here, so it, we don't have that problem much. So I'd rather be in the woods instead of fishing, anyways. Yeah. Well, I'm. You know, it's. I'm. I'm getting back into fishing a little bit more now that I've become more sedentary in my old age. I'm <laughs> likely to do a little fishing when, when yeah. the opportunity is But no, that's another thing that's happened that's increased the turkey hunting pressure as well. Is the fact that all of our big game hunting has gone to to draw. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, in fact, just the last couple of days, I was looking at the draw odds for big game, all the big game species in this state, and across the board for a lot of the game species, it's the best odds are like one in ten mm-hmm. of drawing. You know, and uh, does that so a, it's, does that apply put, for residents? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the residents are combined in the same draws. The non-residents are they separate draws? No, they're they're the same draw, but we're the num the re- well, I shouldn't say they're they are separate pools, and but non-residents are restricted to a certain percentage of the permits in the state. Mm-hmm. But there's still even with that, the number of people that are applying for our big game permits has just become incredible. I mean that, and I don't know where they're all coming from. But, uh, you know, like I said, 20, 30 years ago, the odds were 50% that I could draw an elk tag. And now the odds are at best one in 10, you know. So it's all the disposable income available to people nowadays, I'm guessing. Because, you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago or better, there wasn't so many people that could just pick up and travel the country and go turkey hunting and drop, drop that money. It was... It was a lot tighter as far as finances back then, too. Yeah. But, you know, the, the point being that is that a lot of people that would never have thought about going turkey hunting because they don't get to, they can't draw permits for big game around here anymore, a lot of them. They end up going, well, if I want to go hunting, I've got to choose something where I can buy an over-the-counter permit, and that's, what it what is that? In the springtime, it's turkeys. So we have, and that is so now, and you know this, I'm sure you guys see it too. There are just so many novice turkey hunters trying to figure out how to hunt turkeys in the springtime around here. That that's another thing that's happening to the birds. They're getting scared out of their wits. Right. Three right. days of the season by people that don't have a clue what they're doing. That's the nice thing about getting old and retired is that you can avoid those weekend stuff. That weekend, <laughs> yeah. you know. So. I'm, not, I'm not quite yet there though so I, yeah. I get if i get my early trip in the early spring then i can do you know a week or two but other than that i'm pretty much resigned to friday saturday sunday so i gotta yeah. i gotta get in there and i gotta rub elbows with the with the with the masses i feel i feel for you mm-hmm. i'm assuming both in that that stage still All right. Andre. Andre can get time off during the week, so yeah, I'm I'm uh my so my Saturday and Sunday, you know, is Wednesday, Thursday, um, and then during turkey season, I make it so I can have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off, and sometimes even if the weather's really good, I'll even go like Monday morning before work, um. 
And then occasionally, even a weekend, I'll get out there in the morning. But when I'm doing that, when it's a work day, I'm really limited to maybe just about three hours that I could get out there before I got to head out. Um, but yes, luckily, I'm a, uh, I, I'm able to avoid the crowds by going in there uh, middle of the week. Uh, yeah. The birds also seem to behave a little bit better on a Wednesday than they're going to on a Saturday or a Sunday. Yeah, that's uh, a function of those other people being out there, I'm afraid. So. Mm-hmm. Great. I was going to ask, uh, considering how dry uh, New Mexico is from what you were saying, so I take it water is a very important thing to key in on out there, huh? Absolutely, yeah. There's not surface water, you know, available surface water within about a mile of somewhere. There's not going to be any turkeys there, or at least they're not going to be there all the time. They may wander through there occasionally. But, uh, yeah, that's that's one of the things hunting, especially in the southwestern, like, you know, New Mexico and Arizona, you know, that mainly this area, it's you're if you're. One of the first key elements you're looking for if you're doing, you know, some sort of map scouting or something is where the water sources are. Mm-hmm. And there's, well, I find it kind of, I guess, it's maybe funny or whatever, but when when I first started turkey hunting, you know, out east and up here in Minnesota, you know, you always read, you know, there wasn't that much information out, but you always read, you know, find sources of water you know, turkeys will be around sources of water. And I'd go out in the woods and I'd be like, well, there's water everywhere with me. What, what, what do you mean? What, what types of sources of water am I looking for? You know, yeah. it'd, it'd be everywhere. But then you get out, like you say, out west there, then I could see it would be more of a factor where it would come and play more. Definitely. It's, you know, and without a doubt, and, and talking once again about the Gila wilderness, uh, you know, giant area, roadless area, relatively inaccessible and with relatively few or, you know, little water, surface water. You know, there are some streams and stuff. And and one of the things that, you know, decades ago, they made a lot of these dirt tanks and stuff in the mountains for cattle grazing and stuff. And so a lot of people focus around those those water sources and that just makes it that much more difficult to find a place where there's turkeys, where there's not going to be somebody else hunting. So. Sure. Uh, Jim, I was going to ask, uh, so it sounds like you've been hunting turkeys for a very long time. When did you start hunting turkeys? Well, I think the first year I went, I was, it was actually the first year they had a spring turkey hunt in New Mexico. And I think I was 13. And, you know, of course I was subject to go on turkey hunting if my father wanted to go mm-hmm. basically that time i didn't start seriously turkey hunting until i probably right when i got out of high school and uh me and a couple of buddies started going and you know it was one of those things where nobody knew anything and spring season was brand new here and we didn't have a clue you know i think that was Looking back, I think the biggest mistake that we made was that we were going hunting starting at sunrise, which was, you know, 
45 minutes after all the action had taken place. Right. Right. Went, we asleep there, you know. And uh, it wasn't until I figured out that, hey, you got to get out there in the dark where the turkeys are if you're really going to have a chance to be successful. And uh, so anyway, but yeah, I started started in the somewhere in the mid 60s or early 60s whenever they had this, the first season here and got serious about it about in the early 70s couldn't figure out how to kill a turkey until about five years after that and finally got one a, a gobbler to come down off of a ridge and walk right up to me and let me shoot him and that was that you know I go wow this is the coolest thing ever you know and hey. Right. That was the start of it. And so when was, uh, when would you say it was like the heyday? When was the prime of it all? In New Mexico? For you, yeah. In your, just your journey, your turkey hunting journey. When were you like on fire for it? (laughs) Oh, I really started getting serious about, you know, traveling and going other places and, expanding beyond just hunting our season here in new mexico probably in the 90s mm-hmm. yes that's pretty good you know yeah yeah it sounds like so, in general the 90s was a good time for turkey hunting yeah yeah you know i we still have what i consider to be good turkey hunting in new mexico it's just that it's there's too many people that have discovered it yeah and you know it's so it's more difficult just based on that, but we still have a good number of turkeys. I mean, it's not like the the turkey popula- population itself has declined enough where I think it's it's a factor. Yeah, yeah. Not like you know, you look at the, all the stuff that's going on in the southeastern states and and the declines, and and even in the Midwest, I guess I get the Kansas and Nebraska, Oklahoma. yeah. Yeah, all those states that we didn't, we haven't experienced that kind of yeah. decline as a result of whatever's causing them, you know. So uh, I was going to ask, compared to when you started in the mid-60s and then getting more serious about it later on, uh, how have you seen just like the overall like change and evolution of turkey hunting and, you know, the the turkey hunter from kind of that time period, 70s, 80s, to kind of where we're at right now? Oh, boy. I mean, it's, it's sheer numbers, basically. And then, you know, we've all, even you guys that are younger than me, you've seen the onset of all these different, you know, decoys and strutter decoys and you know, put people using fans and all that kind of stuff. Andre got some firsthand experience the last couple of years of a guy that runs around up here with his turkey fan reaping him. Yeah. Well, that that's gonna be a big deal. You know, that, in terms, you know, I don't care, but I don't really care how people kill their turkeys. But if if you get too many people killing turkeys that way, and if anybody's done it, I've done it before. And the turkeys are just absolutely susceptible to that method of hunting them, you know. And it, it's they're pretty much problem. defenseless, it seems. What's that? I said they're pretty much defenseless, it seems. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, having experimented with fans before in the last 10 years on and off and seeing the reaction of mature governors to those fans, you know, something's got to be done. If, if We either got to decrease the number of people that are they're hunting or right. we've got to do something where we're not killing so many mature gobblers by the use of male turkey decoys, you know? I mean, that's just the way it is. I would imagine it, at the, to some point, though, you know, if you keep doing it, at some point, the, the fun's got to wear out and it's got to become, you know, similar to sitting in a a shack somewhere over a chufa field waiting for a turkey to come in. I can't imagine, yeah. you know, the excitement bears, burns out, I would imagine, after a while. And then then it's, you know, you're not just doing it for the excitement of it. You're just doing it because you want to kill that turkey. It's no other reason for it. Well, and that's, you know, let's face it. There's most of the people that are turkey hunting. That's all they're out there for is to kill a turkey, and they don't care how they do it. Right. You know? right. It was, was, was going to get me into the next question on, you know, from when you started until now, what? What do you think it has been one of the biggest influences on, you know, how people hunt turkeys? You know, you get a, you get a lot of people, you know, to begin with, it was, well, you know, it was the big guys that were, you know, the 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 mossy oak guys and whatever on TV got me in. And now it's, it's you know, the YouTube guys are doing it, you know, and I, I can see the YouTube and the online hunters you know, you get it. You get in the argument about you know states are getting overcrowded with the online YouTube hunters, and it. I don't really think that's so much the case as it is so much as they influence the way people go about hunting the bird, as compared to how we we hunted. You know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's like you were saying earlier. It's more of, you know, I got to get there now, and I got to do it now, and I got to be done with it, and I, I get, I got to get it, you know. Whereas before, it was a lot of guys when they went turkey hunting in the woods, it wasn't, you know, I got to get them this morning. It was, boy, it would be nice, you know, I get to know these turkeys well enough where in two, three days I might get a shot at one. Yeah, well, and let's face it, that that at least for me, and I'm assuming you guys too, that the initial thrill that I found in spring turkey hunting was strictly that calling to a bird that would come in and then he'd come in strutting and gobbling and doing that whole breeding ritual thing. That was the attraction for me. But you didn't have stuff like strutter decoys and you didn't have, you know, 50 different call manufacturers making calls that sound exactly like a turkey if you just spend five minutes trying to use it, you know. And all these innovations that have come along since I started, you know, every one of those is is put just impacted the the sport, you know, right. to it. And some of it's been positive, but unfortunately, we're seeing the results of a lot of the negative stuff that's that's accompanied that. So, but what do you do? You know, we we have these discussions on the forum about what the solution is, and you know the. To me, the obvious solution is you either cut back on the use of some of this high-tech stuff, you know, we talk about using TSS and, you know, strutter decoys and, you know, DSD decoys that 
look exactly like a real turkey and all that kind of stuff. At what point do you say, you know, we got to get back to the basics here somehow or another, not only for the benefit of the turkey population, but for the benefit of hunters, because it's just going to get harder and harder. And, you know, the aesthetics of going turkey hunting are just declining because there's so many people doing it and they have such effective methods of, of killing turkeys, you know? Yeah. Um, what I think it's gotten to a point and I think realistically the way it's going to be is it's, it just has to be like kind of this, uh, self discipline amongst the turkey hunter that takes the decision not to use those things because I feel, um, some of these companies, like the ones that you mentioned, there's, uh, there's so much money involved in it. It's a business, you know, and, um, you know, I mean, decoys and all that stuff kind of have their place. Like when someone's taking out a child, you know, and you want to teach a child, um, you know, I don't think anybody's really going to argue that point, you know? So, um, there is a, uh, we won't be able to ever completely just get rid of decoys. Um, the fanning, I can see because it's already kind of happened where some states pass some laws against the fanning. I would be uh, I would be okay with that. I think that's a that's a decent uh, you know I'm okay with that. Whatever we 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 keep the decoys, but the 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 fanning is something that I'd be okay if they just got rid of it entirely. If they want to restrict it to private property, I mean, sure, why not? You know. Yeah, well, um, you know, to me, it's not just fanning. It's it's the whole male decoy use to right. me. I think that they all have the same impact on on male turkeys. Male turkeys are, you know, they're they're subject to that dominance gene that is just instinctive in them, and that's why they do it. And so I think if you know if you're going to get rid of fans, you just got to do the same thing with strutter decoys. At least you might. You know, Jake decoys, not in strutting form, maybe, I don't know, you know, yeah. but, but regardless, it's, you know, we re we're reaching a point if, if we haven't already, we're, where we're killing too many turkeys with too many people out there in the woods doing it, you know, and it's got, something's got to be done. Mm -hmm. too, too many turkeys, I think, too, that are higher up on the dominance level in the flock, you know. Yeah. Whereas compared to 30 years ago, them turkeys would have been untouchable for most of the season. Absolutely agree with it. That, you know, that fanning and the use of strutter decoys were killing all those birds that just were not susceptible to being called in by traditional methods, you know. So, so what, do you, what do you have to, you know, say to the guys, you know, well, can't we all get along, you know, if it's legal? You know, why do you care? What What do you have to say to, you know, the people that, you know, respond like that? Well, I'm okay with that. If it's legal, it's okay. As long as, along with that, as Andre was saying, people having the, you know, the, the forethought to not exploit the resource by right. using tactics. Yeah, right. On the, on the forum one, somebody was talking about this one time, and I said, I don't, you know, a guy that goes out and kills two gobblers during the season 
using a turkey call is not having any more impact on the resource than the two guys that kills two gobbers using a fan the first day. But the problem is the guy using the fan the first day tells his buddy that's also not a turkey hunter. He says, oh, just get you a fan and go out there. And he kills two turkeys. And pretty soon you got people that that would, you know, kill, maybe kill a turkey during the season using a turkey call or using traditional tactics that are going out there and killing gobbler after gobble, gobbler just by using a, a male turkey decoy. You know? Right. Uh, and so it's got to take, like Andre said, it's self-discipline is something that's that needs to be found in the turkey hunting community. And I don't think there's that many people that have it, really. Right. And, and I think a lot of that might have to do with a lot of the newer turkey hunters. They don't have influences from mentors, you know, close to them. It's it's what they what they watched on YouTube. And a lot of that stuff on YouTube is people running around with fans and sitting in front of strider decoys and whatnot. So it's, you know, it's like, all right, it's progression. If I want to go turkey hunting, I got to go get myself a strider decoy and I got to go get myself a fan because that's what I see him doing on, on yep. YouTube and whatnot. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. Unless you start getting more people involved in the sport through mentors and stuff like that, you know, showing how, how it used to be and how, you know, a lot of people do it where, you know, it's it's not so rushed and it's not so got to have it right now and show them, you know, what it's actually like to sit up on the ridge in the morning and call to a turkey that's 300 yards away that you can't see, but you can hear them, you know, you, can, you can't see them visually, but you can see them up here. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite hunts where I don't get to see him until he's almost in in killing range where it's just a listen in my imagination showing me what he's doing and telling me that he's coming and stuff. Those are my favorite hunts. You know, and that's another point that to be made is that a lot of turkey hunting, at least for me, is the anticipation of what might happen. Right. Know? And that's, you're talking about you know, going out, hearing a gobbler on the roost, and you're going, you know, how's this going to play out? Go in there and call to him. Is he going to be one of those ones that flies out of the tree and comes right to me? Or is he going to be one of the ones that just disappears or, or what, you know? So it's that anticipation is a big part as well. If you guys want to wrap it up, I, like I said, uh, I'm, I can talk turkey forever, but I know it's getting late there, so. Yep, it's about 11 here, so... We appreciate you coming on. We appreciate you doing this. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely uh, get you back on again. And just, uh, I was telling Paul, I want to get you on and just uh, hear you tell turkey stories from just all your years of turkey hunting. So we'll call it uh, the Gobble Nut Hour. I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to visit with you guys again. Yeah. Put that record gobbler back there absolutely so do one after the season and do a little season recap yeah oh yeah that's good you know love to do it so awesome all right jim you have a good one thanks thanks for the honor of being invited to be on your show hey so, no problem yeah all, right. all ours take care all right see ya thank you for listening to the off the roost podcast if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. You could also follow us on Instagram at Off the Roost Calls and on TikTok at Off the Roost Pod. 
stay tuned for future episodes where we'll do our best to keep you informed on the latest in turkey hunting and try to remember the heritage that surrounds the elusive and sometimes mystical animal that is the wild turkey. Thank you.